You're listening to Find Your Voice, a podcast made in collaboration with community-backed independent for Goldstein, Zoe Daniel. We acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the traditional land of the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to our latest podcast. My guest this week is the inimitable Cathy McGowan, former member for Indi in northeast Victoria. And it so happens an old friend of mine, Cathy and I first met when I was presenting the Country Hour for the ABC Rural Department in the mid to late 90s. And we actually did a trip to the United States together, which I think was quite a formative experience for me, I was in my 20s at the time, with a group of rural women who were particularly fabulous and set a great example for me when it came to women's leadership. Cathy, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. Good morning, Zoe. And it is really lovely to connect again. And congratulations on turning up and speaking up and stepping up to this wonderful leadership role. Thank you. Now, I wanted to just give our audience a little taste of that trip to the United States where you and I travelled together. Can you just speak to what that was about and what you think that achieved when it Mm. comes to fostering leadership among that group of women that were with us? So it was about 1998 and I was involved in a women's organisation called Australian Women in Agriculture. And a few years earlier, we had organised the world's largest agricultural conference at Melbourne University. And we'd invited women from all over the world involved in agriculture to come and connect. And it was a magnificent conference. So, and we were very excited. We had ministers come. We had, uh, we talked agriculture, we talked farming, we talked food supply. And there was a group of people there from America. And the Americans said, well, we want one of these, as they did. And we said, well, that's a great idea. You can host the next one. So they did. It was, it was in Washington. So we Australian women organised a deputation from Australia to go to Washington. So we had to do all the work of getting the funding and getting ourselves organised, which was a big job. But I think there was about 120 of us who went from all over Australia and from all agricultural industries. So we went to Washington. But before that, we were invited by the Women in Agriculture in California to come and have a tour, which is what we did with you. So we went to California and we looked at agriculture hosted by the women there. So it was the first time we'd ever, many of us had travelled before, but we'd never gone as an industry group. We'd never seen ourselves as professional in that sense, because in Australia, people kept on referring to us as, you know, the farmer's wife, whereas this trip, we were professional food producers. So what the app, not only was it a fascinating conference and followed a few years later by one in Spain, hosted by the Queen of Spain and then another one in Africa, but what the immediate outcome was is visibility and participation and then confidence. And I think that visibility, participation and confidence of women in ag then, but links to what we're doing now, is in the past we'd passed over our power to the men to the leaders of agriculture, to the presidents and secretaries of the Victorian Farmers Federation. But what this trip gave us a chance to see was that, well, actually it was us, that we could do things, that we could organise, that we had opinions. And then doing it together, you, sh- you found your own tribe. You found all these other people that thought a bit similar to you and had lives a bit similar to you. So then we created networks and we did a huge amount of work after that. But it was sort of like the visibility and the confidence that we got in that first instance that stayed with us. Mm. And it was a particularly um, 
interesting and dynamic group of women in many ways from my perspective and also a group of women that have achieved all sorts of things since and I, I've since wondered whether that trip was a a pivotal event for a lot of those women that it, it enabled them to believe that they could step forward in various ways also with the support of the others who were in the group. Oh, absolutely, Zoe. That's what happened. And there's been a lot of work done since on actually documenting those women's pathways and their huge achievements right across the country. So, And many, many of us still stay in touch. So, yeah, it is exactly as you said. It's confidence, it's connection. and But it's also the sense that what, what you're saying is not what other people are saying. And then you hear the discord and you think, well, this is not quite right. Well, who's going to be the change? Well, well, it needs to be us. We can't keep on wanting other people to do stuff for us. We've actually got to do it if it's going to happen. Now, way back then in 1998, when we were travelling around the strawberry patches in California and visiting the vineyards, the strawberries were like the size of apples. It was quite revelatory, actually. Did you ever at that point think, oh, yes, down the track, I'm going to end up in politics? Is that something that had ever crossed your radar? Well, I think always I'm interested in politics. So in my early days, in, in when I was in my 20s, I worked for a federal member of parliament because I was always interested in politics and my family are political as well. You know, dad, my dad was a member of the Liberal Party and my, my family have been in local government in lots of different ways. So it's always been there. But um, I think I decided that where I was most likely to have my influence was in agriculture and and women not only women in agriculture but I got involved in the Victorian Farmers Federation and the National Farmers Federation so I think I decided that that was where my leadership and my politics was best used and I was really interested in that I, I wasn't so interested in the argy-bargy of uh, parliamentary politics so I was always political but I decided that agri-politics was really where I was, wanted to be rather than the other sort of politics so yeah it was quite a decision in, when I was 60, actually, to put my hand up for federal politics. But anyhow, that happened. And then I, got, I surprised myself by how much I liked the job. Um, and and all, the, all, the, all the things that I'd learned in agri-politics, just trans, um, all those skills just moved over to the other politics. And I was able, I found, I, I look, so it was so funny because um, when I got to Parliament, I remember sitting there one day and thinking, and it was really a, a, a robust day and people were being very noisy and I thought to myself well this is not a patch on one community politics like you know managing local domestic politics which is really intense and then surviving agri-politics agri-politics was a really tough gig and particularly as a woman there so by the time I got to parliament I thought oh I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna survive this I've been in hotter kitchens than this one and and plus the intensity of the politics in agriculture where you really are fighting for sheep stations often and people have got a huge vested interest in what you're doing and the fact that I came through that with my integrity and my reputation to intact and then I got to parliament I thought ah I think I can do this job I think I know how to do this job and not only that I've I've been um I've had a good apprenticeship. Mm. It, it occurs to me whether you were a bit of a product of a time too when it comes to agri-politics that era in the 1990s and early 2000s gave a lot of prominence to agri-politics on the national stage. You had Donald McGecky as the head of the National Farmers Federation. You had people like Wendy Craik, who was 
also involved in the NFF. You had a lot of deregulation and restructuring of things like the dairy industry and marketing of beef and lamb and all sorts of things. So there, there was a lot going on. There was even then a lot of talk about climate. So drought was always in the, the national discussion and particularly the Howard government were very aware of this. So do you think in some ways that exposure as well opened your mind to the the national situation, if you like, like how you could have an impact? It, it did. But there was, there's, and there's some very strong parallels with what's happening now with the independence movement, I think, Zoe. So we were women in ag and we worked, we're all married to or loved or lived with partners with men in ag. <laughs> so it wasn't that we were making men less. We were actually making us more. And we couldn't, we couldn't win the argument by head-on battling the blokes were never going to give way. We had to be more subtle. And in all our lives, we'd learned subtlety, I have to say. But one of the things that we learned was if we wanted change, we had to bring the community with us. Whereas if you're the leader of, if you're the male leader of an organisation, you don't have to worry too much about your community. As long as you've got the numbers on the committee, you're right. So we set about learning how to bring community with us. So you're talking about the deregulation of the dairy industry. So to make that work, we had community, well, discussion groups of dairy farmers talking about it. So, and that hadn't happened before. We'd had discussion groups before about daring, but not about change. So all across the country, there were women in dairy groups being set up to talk about, well, the government support for dairying is going to end. What's that going to mean? Um, How do we understand it? So there was these participatory grassroots movements engaging in that process, led by us women, mostly. So we learned how to do it, but we also got, we also learned that incredible power when people understand what's going on for them. And when rather than just saying, okay, the president of the, the Victorian dairy farms is going to make a decision. So when you invite the president to come to your community and you talk to him about the impact on your family and your farm and your children, it's a totally different discussion. So I think that's that's really where I and others learned that it's not just a, a way of getting elected community engagement, it actually gets you better decisions. And not only that, people get interested in what they're doing. And once they're interested, they start saying, well, I care about this, I'm going to become involved. And so huge numbers of women became involved in farmer organisations, started having opinions, doing leadership workshop. And if you look around agriculture now, there's women absolutely everywhere. They move through the system, but it was through that participatory process. And I see exactly the same thing happening now with this community independent movement. It's not just the what you're doing, it's how you're doing it. So you're not just setting yourself up to be a single issue independent, you're engaging your community and your community saying, yeah, we're going to be with you um, on this, Zoe. Um, And we're all going to step up into leadership roles and we're all going to carry this responsibility together. We're not just going to send you off to Canberra to do the job. We're going to be with you through the whole period that you're our member of parliament and you'll consult with us and we'll consult with you. And together, we'll actually grow our community and make it stronger. So I see that parallel really strongly in what's happening now. One of the interesting things as a former journalist who's now sitting on this side is to watch how the media is grappling with what's going on with the voices of movement and the various candidates around the country. And I was thinking about it this morning that in some ways it reminds me of the way the media really had trouble grappling with Donald Trump in the United States because there's a desire 
to label people and organisations in particular ways or to brand them left or right or to, you know, try to fit them into a box. And the US media really struggled to actually figure out what was going on with Donald Trump, for example, and why people were supporting him. And then you saw in the 2016 campaign the grave mistake that the bulk of the media made in sort of dismissing him as a sideshow. Not to say that it's a direct parallel because, of course, these independents are not Trump-like at all, but the, the media seems to be struggling with whether to dismiss the Voices of Movement as a sideshow or a bit of a distraction from the main game or not. And I just wonder, because I've been out talking to people in the street and getting such amazing feedback and really deep engagement from those people, whether the, the media and our, our traditional politicians are kind of missing the point about mm. what you're talking about, about how that community engagement does really resonate with people. Uh, look, there's two things about what you're saying. One is I don't think media do have language for it. So that's part of our job is describing to our, not so much the media, but to our community, giving them a framework to work with. So I'm happy to talk a little bit about that. Um, and I think that's really important because it doesn't exist. We're actually creating this as we move through it. It's not like there's a destination that we're going towards. We're actually making our own pathway. And in Goldstein, you're making your own way of doing things. So you're giving, helping people have words and a framework to understand it is really important. And that will be different to Goldstein as it was in Indi, I'm sure, and in, um, and in what's happening in Sydney. But there's, an, there's another thing about the media that I think is really interesting is that they don't know how to um, appreciate it yet because it hasn't happened in a way for them what they're, they're looking for the result which is the election day result and then when something happens there they go oh that happened and they'll look backwards but it's actually in the process now of unfolding and media find it really hard to talk about process because it's and particularly the process that we're doing in community work it's largely invisible so it's not like a building that you can hang on to and so what i the the important thing for me in Indi was I, I was getting the feeling that you've got that something momentous was happening. I, I was stunned by it, by the community engagement. But the real magic was winning, Zoe. And I only won in 2013 by, let me say, 439 votes. Mm -hmm. Despite that huge feeling that we'd had, despite the huge community engagement, despite everything that happened, it was the narrowest victories. And I'm not going to say luck. But it was if we hadn't won, it wouldn't have happened, even though we'd done all that work. So the real importance for the movement now is I think they've done the foundation work of getting community engaged and getting, you know, talking to people and kitchen table conversations. They've done the next stage of the job, which is finding really good candidates. And then the really, where the rubber hits the road, is winning. Because coming second in this battle is not, is not in some communities, that will be a win. But for, for those of us who actually want to get to Parliament and make the difference, you've actually got to win. And so that's when it really comes back to the, the one is helping the mainstream media understand it. That's a job. But I didn't put too much in, energy into that because I thought if we don't win, it's not going to be a story. So my energy went into my working with the volunteers and we had some really useful um, measurement points so we talked to the volunteers about one in four we needed one in four votes in the whole electorate to vote one so that was in every conversation one in four <laughs> we don't need everyone but we need one in four and then for those particular volunteers who are really keen to to get out and do work we needed for every 
we need we had 500 volunteers and I needed 50 I need 50 votes from each one of those so that was the metrics to get my 25,000 first votes in fact I ended up getting 32,000 but you know it, it was very very close so so that's that's my sense about the media can't wrap their minds around it yet because it hasn't happened for them and mm. what's we're developing a process now but the winning is important and i don't think everybody has to win but we need two or three and which is a big ask Twenty-five thousand votes is a lot of votes you put all those people together and it's a lot of people so that's a that's a big talk but of course there will be secondary there there are all these really good things that come but in my community, really, it was winning that made the difference. It was, if we'd, if we'd come second, I, don't, I wouldn't have got another go at it. People said, no, nah, it didn't work, wasted time. So the winning was really important. And I, and I often laugh at myself, but I know that in agriculture, you know, if you don't get the crop off, <laughs> there's no point mm. in having done all the work. You can't sell it. So you've actually, got to, you've actually got to go the distance and then you've got to come out ahead. Yeah, there's a, a similar parallel in journalism. I remember when I was in journalism school, the mantra was, well, if you're late to the press conference, you don't get the story. You know, it's a very deadline-driven industry, obviously. So there's, there's no point having your piece ready five minutes after the news has been on because, therefore, that's completely wasted effort. And I think there is a sort of parallel in terms of working towards election day in the campaign and we have to hit that mark. I wonder how you respond to those, there's a piece in The Age today, um, for example, with a line along the lines of, you know, being nervous around a group of kingmaker independents with the balance of power. And I, I certainly uh, do not see it through that prism at all. But how, how do you respond to that niggling anxiety that some people might have about putting a group of independents in control if, if it came to that? Yeah. So. It's sort of catastrophizing, and the journal media is really good at it. So I, I, I had a really strict rule about sticking to my business. So my business was getting elected and, and, and servicing the people of Indi. What other people said about me really wasn't my business. Like I paid attention to it, but I, I didn't in, engage in it. And, and you're a media person, so this, this advice might be a bit more um, contradictory to you, but the reality is that stories in the in the the age or the herald don't really change people's minds what changes people's minds is their neighbors talking to them and an experience that they have so i decided not to worry too much about what mainstream media was saying about me i thought they didn't understand um and then and people like zali and helen can go out and, and do that argument but for you and for the people that you're working with they're going to make up their mind on their experience of you and the experience of your volunteers. And it's going to be an experience, not of logic. I don't think of a lot. There'll be some logic, but, but more, it will be people will vote for you because you're a better choice. And you'll be, that's why they will vote for you. And you'll be a better choice because the neighbors and the friends and your door knockers will say, I know her and she's a better choice. And we, and then tell me what, tell me, and this is how she'll work. So, It'll be the evidence of how you do the campaign that will win you the vote rather than having the argument with the mainstream journalists. So I'd be saying let Zali and Helen and Andrew Wilkie and Rebecca make the argument about kingmakers. That's their job. If you get elected, they're going to be that they're going to they're going to be the ones at the front. I mean, you're going to have your position, of course. But my my sense is there are some things that you've got to hold till you get elected. And when people say, well, who are you going to give your balance of power, you know, your vote to, you say, well, let's wait and see. I can't make that decision now. But I can tell you 
you say to your people, this is how I will work if I would get elected. You know, I'm going to be a community person. I'm going to represent my community. Here's are my, these are my values. And I will be a better choice for you. And then people, people will vote for you because of that experience. So not, not of what the mainstream media says. So I'd be, for every article in the mainstream media, I'd be getting out with your walking boots and going along your gorgeous beaches and, you know, through your suburbs and, and being in your shopping centres an extra five, you know, five hours a day if you can, because that's, that's where you'll win the election, not, not in the mainstream media. Cathy, so good to talk to you. We could talk all day and, and we will talk again, but thank you so much for being part of our podcast this morning. And maybe we'll try and get you on again in the new year as the campaign evolves for a bit of a progress update and also some tips for our volunteers as we continue walking the streets, door knocking and, and meeting people around Goldstein. Thank you, Cathy. Just one final word. I really want to say to you and to the people listening, it's worth it. Um, it's worth it when you win. But more than that, it's worth, it's worth getting that feeling of confidence of engaging in politics and knowing what you think and using your voice really does matter and it makes a huge difference. So all power to you over, over January as you get out and do the work and I wish you well. Thank you, Cathy. And just to finish off on that one, I just want to uh, relate a little anecdote because one thing that I think is really important is to try to engage young people in politics and they don't even necessarily have to be voting age just to try to generate some interest. I was in the shopping centre last week madly trying to get a birthday present for my mother who was turning 70 and I was in my tracksuit with a baseball cap and a face mask on and I walked into a, a shop to have a, a browse and a young woman came up to me who was I think about 18 and said oh you're Zoe I've just signed up for your youth organisation. I'm so excited to get involved. And I said, oh, my goodness, how on earth did you even recognise me? And she said, I recognise your glasses. But she was really <laughs> excited. And I, I just found that so motivating to think that people of that age are engaging with our campaign. Great. Happy Christmas. You too, Kathy McGowan joining us on our podcast and everyone will be back in the new year. You can learn more about Zoe, her policies and how you can support this grassroots campaign at zoedaniel.com.au. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and share with your family and friends. Every bit of support matters. This podcast is authorised by Zoe Daniel, Level 1, 9-214 Bay Street, Brighton, Victoria, 